Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Eric Jackson, one of the most successful professional kayakers in history. Eric spent 26 years on the USA kayak team between 1989 and 2015, competing and winning on an international level well into his 40s. And then he made the U.S. team again in 2017 at the age of 53. Along the way, Eric has pushed and defined the world of freestyle kayaking, founded the best-selling brand and paddle sports manufacturer, Jackson Kayak, and he also found time to win four world championships. In our conversation today, Eric essentially provides a masterclass on the history and the evolution of paddle sports, and even if you've never paddled a day in your life, I think that Eric's insights into the boating world that he played such a seminal role in shaping will provide a number of takeaways for how best to grow and preserve the best aspects of other sports and communities and industries such as skiing and snowboarding and mountain biking, trail running, etc. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by Mountain Flow, makers of high-performing biodegradable ski wax and bike loop. Now, we just published this past Friday a Gear 30 podcast episode with Mountain Flow founder Peter Arlene, where we really dive into the details on how ski wax works and why having biodegradable products that also work is maybe a bigger deal than you might realize. And for that reason, we are really proud to be partnering with Mountain Flow. So check out that Gear 30 episode. We'll include a link to it in the show notes and head over to mountainflow.com to check out all of Mountain Flow's current products. Finally, I want to remind you that our second annual Blister Summit will be kicking off on February 20th right here in Mount Crested Butte. And we want to have you here with us. You can find all the up-to-date details about the summit in the show notes of this episode, or you can go to the navigation bar of our website where it says Blister Summit. And while you're there, you can also check out our guide to the Gunnison Valley, which includes very helpful travel information and logistics and all the current up-to-date flight information. So check those things out and then... Come see us. And now, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Eric Jackson. Here we go. Well, Eric, how are you today and where are you today? Hey, Jonathan. I'm not in Crested Butte, Colorado. I can tell you that. So today I was wearing shorts and no shirt all day in Rock Island, Tennessee. So we're in one of those amazing warm fronts, uh, had some rain a couple days ago, the river's flowing. So we're in middle Tennessee on the Cumberland Plateau. And if you don't know what the Cumberland Plateau, look it up. It's like super badass. There is a lot of ground I want to cover with you today. And so we are just going to dive right in. My first question here is, um, how old were you when you first paddled a boat? 
Uh, good question. I mean, I don't know. First time, but first time that I went whitewater canoeing and kayaking, I was six. So it was 1970. And my um, my dad worked at Piper Aircraft. He was an engineer designing airplanes. And the, the test pilots and engineers uh, did annual trip down the Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania, Pine Creek. And uh, I, uh, he got invited and he asked me if I wanted to go. And I was six years old. And I was uh, not super excited at first because at that age I was terrified of roller coasters and so my first question was hey dad how fast does the, these whitewater canoes go and he's like I don't know maybe 10 miles an hour I'm like 10 oh pff, that's nothing I'll go <laughs> and that was it was it actually kind of love at first sight or love at first paddle or whatever one might say it was absolutely yeah there was no uh, I had no fear at the time. I was six years old. Um, we got our life jackets on. We put in, and it was class one, two initially. Um, I was a swimmer, loved swimming. Uh, yeah, it was super fun. It was a two-day camping trip. You know, it was an overnighter. So stop, catch some trout, cook up some fish, um, camping. Uh, the big rapid, Owasi, was a class three plus rapid, you know, and we, we went through. And because my dad is a very good supporter, so he's like, yeah, good job, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so I felt like a rock star when I got off the water, and um, that didn't hurt too. Okay, so that's your experience at the age of six. I'd be very curious to hear you walk us through, let's say, the next 10 years. Like, what does the state of boating or whitewater boating look like at that time I, I feel like you are absolutely the right person to kind of give us a bit of the history of like you know modern boating and its development and so talk about what you remember about maybe that first decade of yours getting into boating no that that's actually that's actually a good question and um the the the, the most accurate answer to start with is uh at that time it's all very regional right so um there's no internet there people aren't making videos and sharing videos and i was in pennsylvania um what people were doing in california or oregon or colorado was different than what they were doing in pennsylvania but at that time um it was grumman canoes uh handmade fiberglass kayaks that uh, every time you took them out you had to patch them when you got home or patch them on the river you always of course brought plenty of duct tape um, some things never change, obviously. So, um, uh, uh, 40, uh, 50 years later, duct tape is still a critical component. So, um, duct tape is the one thing that has not evolved since, since, uh, 1970 and it's still just as critical as it was back then. Um, but, uh, so just kind of a snapshot. Um, most people were in Grumman canoes, you know, um, this was 1970. It's like, you know, um, 20 years after, 25 years after World War II and Grumman had to figure out what to do and they made a whole bunch of canoes. Everybody had them before Royal X and everything else. So um, so the big goal in canoeing at the time was to not wrap your canoe around a rock because they were, they were rock magnets. They would stick. Um, people didn't have flotation. So you'd flip upstream and they'd wrap around and then you always brought a winch, 2,000 pound winch, wah, wah, wah. pull it off, stomp it out and keep going, right? Anyway. That was, uh, that was, and you know, back in the day, um, I actually was just, uh, like 70, 71, 72, 73 and 74. We did the same trip every year and we did a, a few little trips. 
I wasn't like a badass kayaker. I was just a whitewater canoeer. We'd go a few times a year. We moved to Florida. So I lived there for four years and uh, the only whitewater we did was take it to the beach. We took our Grumman to the Cocoa Beach and Daytona and stuff like that and terrorized the swimmers. You know, I'm surprised we didn't kill anybody. <laughs> um, but uh, then I moved to New Hampshire. And again, another, um, I'll give you uh, a little taste of it. Um, we moved to New Hampshire. We take the Grumman canoe, three foot of snow on the ground. It's March, but it's warm. Obviously, the rivers are running. We show up to the put in the Salhegan Creek. And there's a group there, and we're like, hey, we're from Florida, but we whitewater canoe. I mean, we haven't done it in four years. We want to go. And one of the guys goes, do you guys have your rating card? And we're like, uh, what's a rating card? And they're like, well, you can't go if you don't have a rating card. And like, what's a rating card? Anyway, and they left us there, and we're like super, super bummed. We're loading the canoe, and these other yahoos pulling, like doing donuts in the snow and stuff. And they're like, hey, you guys going to go canoeing? Like, Oh, we don't have our rating card. And they're like, ah, the Appalachian Mountain Club was here. Don't worry about that. We're the Mer Merrimack Valley Paddlers. You can come with us. <laughs> and it was like, oh, sweet. So we took the canoe down and had a good time. So we joined that club. <laughs> um, and what was funny was, and the reason I bring that up, and by the way, I think I'm a big fan of the Appalachian Mountain Club today, but there was a time they were, um, uh, there was all, you know, the people that like always want to be, um, never got voted as class president in school and stuff like that. <laughs> well, they all got together and started the Appalachian Mountain Club. <laughs> so they all wanted to organize stuff. <laughs> but luckily over the years, they've evolved and they're super badass now. But anyway, um, at that time, there's very little information. And um, when you wanted to do stuff, it was just you joined a club and whatever that club was told you how it was. And if you're in the Appalachian Mountain Club, you don't go very far, very fast. If you're in the Merrimack Valley Paddlers, it's like, oh, this one's running. And you just go, let's just see how far we can go kind of thing. Um, and that's the way it was, I would assume, nationally, where there's, you know, pockets of people pushing the limits and pockets of people holding back. Um, well, anyway, the, that was that took me through about um, the early 80s. Uh, and now the equipment-wise, um, in 1980, I built a hundred um, kayaks in my garage. Um, my dad helped, obviously, um, but I was 15 years old, and we the club needed boats, and there wasn't that many good boats around. And my dad molded a Phoenix Savage, meaning he stole, he took a boat, and he made a mold of it. it now that I'm a kayak manufacturer, I'm like, oh my god, I've been pissed. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm 15 years old. My dad molds this thing, and and Club members for $100 could come to my house and get slave labor, which was me, and make boats, make a boat out of I would help them make their boat out of the mold. That was 1980. 100 boats Phoenix didn't sell because of Merrimack Valley paddlers, specifically my dad. <laughs> uh, that only rarely happens today. There's one company in Canada that molded a Jackson boat once and sold them. But otherwise, um, I don't see a lot of that today. But uh, and they, of course, were fiberglass, so that's the way that worked. And for, for those of you who don't, have never paddled a fiberglass boat, you paddle, you hit a rock, it breaks, you get to the bottom before you sink, you empty out, you let, turn it, let the sun hopefully hit it, try to dry it, put duct tape, get back in the water and keep going. Then you go home, patch it, and that's like every day because fiberglass boats kind of suck. Um, but anyway, that's that's 
probably the long version. With, there's plenty more beta in there, but that kind of gives you a feel. Um, but I will tell you, 1983, 1981 Perception Kayaks wasn't the first one, but the first one I was introduced to, Hydro um, River Chaser was the first, and then I was introduced to the Perception Mirage, their first boat. And literally, the first thing I did was take rocks and just like, like at a club thing, we get in the water and I grab a rock and I'm like, plastic, and I'm just slamming the boat with this rock. And all my, all the other club members in their fiberglass boats are going, whoa. And it was like, you, and it was like, and that was like such a game changer. And that's, that's when we could start really running a lot harder stuff that we weren't worried about sinking on. Yeah. So it was that materials advances in materials that really opened up really opened up the sport yeah absolutely the um it was scary running you know you're on long you know long runs we're super remote in a fiberglass boat now in um idaho uh they were making kevlar boats at that time kayaks and they were obviously a lot stronger colorado kayak supply also was making them um we didn't have them where i was we were only using fiberglass at the time but um so there were at the same time there were people with better materials than we were using. But once plastic came out, it was like you just hit all the rocks, and it was like, wow, okay, now we can do oh, like what we could do. Immediately, we just did ten times more than we could have done before. When it comes to shallow, rocky stuff, anyway. You mentioned kind of a boating pre-internet, and so I take it, and please correct me if. I'm wrong here, but it sounds like you would say if we're interested in some some of the like watershed moments of modern boating, that the internet itself might deserve some credit or I don't know blame I guess um, in terms of how that has shaped the sport. Yeah, absolutely. Um, even more. Um, so I was training for slalom kayaking in 84. I moved to Washington, D.C. I wanted to go to the, I wanted to be on the U.S. team and be a world champion. Wasn't even an Olympic sport when I moved there. Um, I didn't become accepting Olympics until 88, but uh, it occurred to me, I was watching some of the older slalom racers that I was just starting to train with. They would retire and they were like amazing paddlers and they would just get a job as a lawyer or something. Right. And they'd be gone. And all that training and all that information and all those skills would just disappear. And there was no, you know, it wasn't any record of it. They didn't have, hey, look at my video. They didn't have videos. They didn't have photos. They didn't have written description. They didn't have books. They didn't, there was no, they just took all that information with them and it was useless after that. And um, mid nineties, I started writing books and to, push, get that information in front of people. I could, um, what I considered best practices at the time in the form of books and then VHS tapes, just because it was like, piss me off that I couldn't have access to, I want to know what he did and she did and he did and he did and whatever, like feed me that stuff. And it's like, why are you just disappearing with that info? Um, so I wanted to get that best practices out. And that was the only real form was, books and VHS in the night, you know, in the eighties and the, through the nineties. And then when the, the internet started coming out, um, you know, it, it had a small impact in the beginning, but if you look at today, you know, today you want to, you're, you're thinking of going to some remote place 
It's not a first ascent that's been done before. Um, even if it's only been done once, you probably can just go to YouTube, find it, and then see the head cam of all the hardest rapids and know in advance what you're getting into. And if it's been run 50 times, you're probably going to find somebody talk about logistics like, oh, man, you, you should fly into here and you rent a car or you do this. Or, um, and then on the technique side, you, can, you have people videoing from the side. So like uh, this new waterfall trick called the cobra flip or whatever you want to know how to do a cobra flip, just, um, just go to Dane's you know, Instagram channel, my son Dane, and, and just slow-mo his thing and you see exactly, like you just frame by frame, like, okay, I can do that or I don't want to do that or I can do that. And then that didn't exist before. Um, you not only didn't exist for the best person, you you were in a little bubble. Like I was the big fish in a little pond when I was up on the Kennebec River in Maine. That was a my first job at age 16. I was a whitewater photographer and I would run this class for plus river every day and then take pictures sometimes twice a day and I would do all the cool stuff I could do and and there was nobody even close to my skill level on that river but what I didn't know was over here and here all these other people were doing different things that I didn't think of like what I, you can do that I didn't know you could do that and it took wasn't until archival footage came out in you know 20 years later of somebody in idaho doing something that it's like wait what i didn't know about that um so the internet is mixed it if it happens tomorrow you can watch it and see how to do it you can go try it tomorrow so that it is just condensed the best paddlers or interested paddlers anybody who wants to be at the top of the sport can search the internet find out what's new and then attempt it tomorrow. They're not going to wait 10 years to realize somebody in another part of the world is doing something. I find myself a little embarrassed while you're talking because exactly what you've laid out in a way makes it obvious why we, one of the reasons why we ought to see a lot of quicker progression whether we're talking about skiing or mountain biking or boating of different stripes, because there is like you, well, you said, well, yeah, I was doing my thing and maybe at a pretty high level, but was kind of unaware of what was happening in all these other pockets. And now that that is rather instant, pretty significant advantage for athletes coming up today. It's mostly the advantage, those that are clearing the path at the top, um, they, it keeps them from getting behind any one little thing. Um, their pace will be faster, but not that much faster. Um, they still are doing things. They have to come up, conceptualize, what am I going to do? you got to come up with your own thing, and you got to learn it on your own. But as soon as you put it out there, it allows all the talented people that have maybe the talent, not the creativity. And I don't know if you've broken down in your sports, but there's by country, you can tell where everybody is on the creativity range. There's creative people that do things and create new things. And there's those that just like tick or like clockwork and can get to a certain, get to the top skill level, but they never progress. They never push past it. They only get to 
what the top people can do and they never create anything on their own. Um, those people have a huge advantage by having the training and the visuals where the, the people that are creating the sport, creating new techniques, new equipment, new equipment for new techniques or that they've just imagined, they're still on the same schedule. So they don't have this, the internet doesn't automatically fuel that in a huge way, but it pulls everybody else up to their level really quick. I have to ask now that you've said that, do you have thoughts or theories on that sort of visionary or creative element uh, gene i don't know what we want to call it like is that just straight magic that we still don't really understand where that comes from no that's uh that's easy to understand the um yeah so uh, let's just start being american really helps um uh being australian would be good um being a german not so good being a czech republic not so good being french somewhere in the middle um, basically being British, eh, nah, not so good. And I, I don't, when I say that, I don't mean, mean no disrespect, but the general, the general demeanor and approach, um, America came many, many years ago from people that just wasn't, wouldn't, aren't going to deal with what's going on in England, whatever. I'm going to be a Quaker. Well, who, what the hell's a Quaker? But we don't care. But we're going to go to America. We're going to be Quakers. Like, like. Um, anyway, that type of mentality. That's what the, this country came from. Now, obviously, um, there's a lot of people that you know. There's ninety percent of people are followers. Ten percent are leaders or whatever. But even the leaders, if you're a leader in you know in in China or Germany or whatever, you're you're. There's a reason China isn't doesn't didn't create the apple and doesn't create. China manufactures it, but they're not conceptualizing all this stuff. It's because they go to school and you do this. You've got to study. You do this. No, no, no. You can't do that. you got to do this. you got to do this. you got to do this. Swiss Germans, you know, the Swiss, like clockwork, we're organized. We're engineers. We we manage all these details. Americans were like, whoa! Like, <laughs> like yeah, let's just huck it, you know? <laughs> like, um, it's a different mentality. So, my career has been very, I've been very fortunate that I learned a long time ago. I learned a very specific lesson. So I was creating moves in slalom that my, my coach at the time wouldn't time me if I didn't do it the way he told me to do it. He would literally get mad at me and be like, if you keep doing that, I created what I called the EJ super up, which you come in and you just like do a big back sweep and you lean back and the boat goes almost vertical and you go around anyway. He's like, I'm not going to time you like, I'm not going to tell you your time. It's like, but it was fast, right? Like, come on, man. Like, he's like, you're not going to win the world's doing that. Richard Fox is the best kayaker in the world. And he does it like this. And this is what you need to do. And, um, and I followed that all the way to the 92 Olympics. We had a, a training camp before the Olympics and Scott Shipley, who was on the U S Olympic team with me, he does, he says, I want to show you on bit. We're doing video review. See how I did this. I think this could be faster. And then, my coach was like timing him. He's like, no, EJ's way is faster. The way I've been telling you is faster. And I'm like, you know, like, oh, okay, I'm doing it better or whatever. Well, a year later, he perfected his new technique that he created and he won the World Cup and he crushed me like the whole season. Like I got behind because I did what I was always doing. And what does a coach know? He's, if he's not an athlete, all he knows is what he's seeing, right? So the athletes have to create the next generation. Anyway, I learned my lesson and I was, I went, no more of that. So from now on, 
all best practices, everything that you know to be true, that you've been told by the top coach or the current world champion, it's all BS. All of those, it all is shitty technique that shouldn't be used, maybe. It's all on the table as none of it, like every single piece of that, there's a better way. And then you go and look for the better way. And then you may fall back on it because you don't find it. And at that moment, that's when I started coming up with new techniques and designing new equipment. Then you have new equipment that does thing the, the new technique better. And then it opens and you're like, whoa, but it, it would make that possible. And then you do that and you're like, oh, but if I have new tech, a new equipment that would make this new move even easier, then all of a sudden it keeps opening it up and it creates an exponential curve. So like in freestyle kayaking, for example, you couldn't compete against me as long as I was creating new moves every year and new equipment that does those new moves. So every world championships I'd come and you'd be like, what's that move? It's like, oh, it's called the whatever McNasty or the Lunar Orbit or whatever. And it's like, oh, you don't know that? Oh, you don't have a shot, shot at this world championships, whatever. And then only once, but once I couldn't come up with any new moves and I plateaued into new moves because, you know, when the equipment got about as short as it could get and the, the evolution flattened, at that moment, the Europeans all went and caught it really quick um, and did really well. Like it was like there's no, there aren't any new moves on the score sheet that, you know, have in the last 10 years. Like they're linking, they're getting higher scores or getting better at linking moves and air bonuses and whatever. But the exact moves they're doing are the same and the equipment is almost identical. So the, that is where people like the... Where the Europeans and the, those that are in a more uh, methodical training and whatever, where the Americans are more like, ah, like, like my son Dane is not training every day right now, right? So um, uh, I'm not saying he can't win the next world. He's the current world champion, but he's competing against people that are training every day right now. Um, that's the difference between the Americans. I mean, not that Americans don't train every day. We do, but um, uh, they're more like, I got to win the world championships. Like I'm. A, and Americans are like, oh, it's like, I'm going to go creek boating or I'm going to whatever. <laughs> that was a great sort of explication of the situation. And I mean, I guess I want to kind of keep pushing you on this. Is it just inevitable that, you know, I mean, this is kind of the nature of pioneering, right? It's like, well, if you're pioneering something, it means there's kind of a blank slate and you start coloring in the lines and creating the lines and that type of thing. And so does it seem just inevitable, necessary that as any discipline kind of progresses, there will simply be fewer moments of the real evolution or revolution that seems somehow a little depressing to me. Do you have a workaround here for us? It goes, so yes and no. So if you want to, if you look at the, if you look at any sport, like I just was, I'm an Arnie Arnold Schwarzenegger fan, you know, for movies and whatever anyway. And I'm, I just, my son, Casey's, I got him to lift some weights. He's starting to lift weights with me. I'm getting him in shape and everything, whatever. And I'm like, oh, you got to check out like the master. Like I don't, he, the guy, he knows him from Terminator and everything. Like check him out. Like he's like world's most famous bodybuilder dude. Right. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, for example, started, it was a very obscure sport when he, committed to it like it was a garage thing like no but so he went all in and crushed and just like crushed everybody 
and was five time Mr. Olympian or whatever. But back when, before what people are doing today, like their muscles, they're just like, compared Arnold Schwarzenegger, but he's the pioneer. He did it in a way and he popularized the sport and created all these techniques. And then they've taken to the next level now the, but now there's things like CrossFit and there's like all these other things happening. Right. So, um, uh, freestyle kayaking for example, just use as an example, um, or slalom kayaking, uh, Let's just do freestyle. So freestyle, you know, my I won my first world championships in a ten foot kayak. Um, I won my last world championships in a six foot kayak, like almost a five something kayak, right? So um, that having of the kayak and being able to, and the moves are not even like what it's all. It's like learning gymnastics. What can somebody do on the on the floor routine? You can only like once somebody. Yeah, people got up to double backflips, for example. But people aren't doing triples, and if unless they change the mat and allow, like, put a little springboard or some way, or somebody, some one person to that be, can pull it off. As of right now, like, it's all double backflips. Like, the when you watch the Olympics today on the floor routine, you're going to see better routines in some ways than 20 years ago. But you're going to see the top what they're top capability is going to be very similar. You're not going to see triples instead of doubles, whatever. Um, it plat it slows, it, you know, went from nobody did a double to like now a few people, then all the best people can, but unless your legs improve or whatever, you're not going to do triples, that kind of thing. So from a, are you going to get depressed that it's slowing the, the, the plateaus or not? That's, um, uh, that exact, that exact discipline, on those types of features, you know, like um, on this type of white water, whatever, there's only so much you can do. So the top athletes that train really hard, you're not going to see a major progression. It is going to slow. So, but what's going to happen is people are going to take it to an extreme river and we're going to do waterfall freestyle is going to be next, right? Why it isn't happening. I'm not sure yet, but I'm, uh, I'm working on, creating venues for that, for example. So it could be that in the future where we've got the world championships of waterfall hucking, freestyle over waterfalls, right? So, and that's going to start with certain things and then it's going to, it'll accelerate really fast. First five years to be like, oh my God, look at it. But then it'll plateau. Um, so when there's a plateau, either somebody gets in gear and come, creates something new like snowboarding did for skiing, for example. Snowboard, like before snowboarding, skiing plateaued. And why did skiing go back up? Because of snowboarding. They're like shorter, wider. Like, wow, like why didn't we think of that? Because we're purists and they have to be, I ski on 210s. Like, I ski on 220s. Like, it's like, well, I ski on 180s or I ski on 150s. Like, well, you're an idiot now, but watch what I can do. <laughs> Anyway, like when I went, was a skier, I wasn't a competitive skier. When I was a skier, the longer the ski, the better you were. Snowboarders fix that problem. Man. I mean, the dominant word in ski design for the last 10 to 15 years is rocker. Which we kind of have, you know, the boat folks to thank for that little development. 
and I'd actually love to talk to you a bit about design. You're saying that skis are now instead of like have negative rocker, they have positive rocker now? Yeah. You know, this is something that certainly can be attributed to snowboards. But yeah, I mean, literally rockered hulls, that's coming from the boat world. So I think I have a pretty clear idea where skis have, you know, I'm happy to say straight up stolen from snowboard design and boat design. But on the boat side of things, where have the advances happened in design? Certainly materials, we've already talked about that. But in terms of shape itself, did you guys steal from other other areas? That's a good question. Um, I can't say from any other you know, boats. I mean, it's certainly my inspiration and in boat designs have all come from uh, from the boating world or what we do with the boat. Um, so my first breakthrough boat was the Wavesport X back in the day, and it was the the big thing was it's the first play boat that you could get at that time boats you were had a low volume stern that you could slice under the water and get it vertical and do squirts like um they were squirtable but the bows were big and my goal was to have one that could get the bow down and the stern down and then you could link them together and get cartwheels and stuff and that was extremely progressive for that industry but the reality is there was a fringe out there called squirt boats that were already doing that. And really their, their goal was to get the boat underwater, but they could get their, their bow and stern was low volume. <clears throat> that was an example of inspiration from another part of the, another, like a fringe. Um, the, all, um, I can only speak to my design. All of my design is um, based on what I want. It's I, I try to do, mostly incre incremental improvements. So in all of my boat design, 90% of my boat design is based on what can I do now and how do I, what do I wish it did better and, and taking an existing design and doing the next generation and tweaking it, but doing it on, on a very regular basis where at, uh, when I was uh, making Jackson kayak boats, for example, I would out design my competitors three to one. So I would have three iterations, three models that were designed, made molds made and brought to market for every one of theirs. So I was just redesigning and so that they were incremental, but three at a time, they were trying to make really big changes and then they would do a lot of things right and some things not right. But by doing incremental changes, but on a regular basis, you could just keep the progression going. Um, but every once in a while, you get to a spot where it's like, okay, we need to start with something new. Um, <clears throat> but all of it was based on boats and water is quite a bit different than snow, for example, um, or land or anything else. So it's, it's really hard to get your inspiration outside of the, of the water world, really. I think you've painted a good picture for us of like, you're the type that's like, let's keep pushing. Let's find new stuff. Let's try new stuff. How frequently would you say across your career so far? Cause it's not like you're done. You're, you're, uh, you haven't exactly slowed down when it comes to like, let's try new stuff. And we're going to talk about that a bit, you know, here, uh, in a sec, but how often did you try an idea, build an idea and you're like, yeah, no, this just didn't work. 
maybe seemed like a pretty interesting idea, looked good on paper. It just absolutely didn't work when we actually put the put the boat in the water. Almost never. <laughs> um, but with that, with that said, obviously, if you're if a kayak, the whitewater kayak industry is fairly small. So the rule, if you want to make money in whitewater kayaking, if you have the number one selling model in a category, you're going to do pretty well. If you're number two, you might make money. If you're number three, if you have the number three model and that you're going to lose money, you just screwed up. So you have to do it right. Uh, and certainly I've made, you know, out of the hundred and some, probably made 15 of them that aren't, you know, 10% of them aren't in the top three when they come out in a category. Um, but they're usually, they were ones long time ago. Um, I figured that out. Like, so we started all of the models in the last 10 years that I've designed have been, have come up in the top, you know, been in the top two, um, uh, which really helps a lot. But, um, the risk is when you're doing something completely new, it's always more challenging, um, to get it right. Now, when it just comes to whether it works or not, so that's in the market, like sales wise, and whether it works or not, um, the, like my first hero was, it was the Jackson kayak hero. I, it was my quote at that time, eight foot six was the maximum length for Creek boat racing and for boater cross racing. Right. So I wanted to design the fastest eight, six boat on the water. And then that's what I did and was the hero. Now, the, in the marketplace, they called it the death dart because <laughs> it was like this pointy, low rocker thing. And it was like super fast. <laughs> the, a lot of my competitors came up with the name, obviously, but they called it the death dart, right? <laughs> um, but if you're lying up against me in that boat, you're not probably going to win. And so um, <laughs> so it, it served a purpose. We won a lot of races. I did my first green race in it and won that in the short boat category. And um. I uh, actually got first, second, and third in that. Like it swept the thing and whatever. Um, but it didn't do very well on the sales floor. <laughs> um, so it really depends on what you're looking at. From a from a winning race point of view, it did really well. From a sales point of view, it didn't do so well. So I've, I've had both of those happen. You mentioned that uh, the, the number of kayak manufacturers, it, it's a pretty small number. And every time I am out with my many friends who are passionate, passionate boaters. It's really interesting that it always seems to come up every single conversation. And this just happened the other night. We were all at Tully's in CB South. Shout out to Rob and Jack and Nate. And then I was just talking with our reviewer and my friend Paul, this same thing that one of the really remarkable things I think about the boating world is sort of just how intimate it is. Everybody knows everybody, right? Everybody's paddled with everybody. And it's actually kind of really charming and attractive like to hear that and understand that. But I would love to hear you talk a bit about the boating community and the question or issue of intimacy versus growth. You, I know, have been thinking about this issue for roughly ever Talk about how you see the pros and cons of all of this as an industry. Well, as an in, for a manufacturer, obviously you want you know millions of sales and tons of people, and, and you want growth in the in your sport. Um, whitewater kayaking has declined 
to a third the size it was in 2000 in terms of kayak sales, but it's not really accurate number because the kayak industry, in order to grow, has constantly shaving off and creating new categories. So back in the 90s, you would buy a whitewater kayak just to putt around the lake and whatever, because they were comfortable and they, there wasn't other much else available. And then kayak, the, the big thing was recreational kayaks. So the um, wilderness systems and Dagger and Perception and all started creating these recreational kayaks that were more stable and had more open cockpits that were more inclusive for older people and stuff. So those people weren't buying whitewater kayaks for that anymore. And the companies weren't s selling their whitewater kayak or to that, kayaks to that crowd. So that category really grew and it pulled from the whitewater thing. But the reality is that the people that are out there every day are, are not are enthusiastic or beginners or just the whitewater world is actually buying just as many whitewater boats. But the people that were, weren't really using them for whitewater was, weren't buying them. So that made it, brought it down. Um, then a big thing happened right after 2000, which was you know, it used to be Bill Masters on Perception, um, Chan Zwanzig on Wavesport, you know, Joe Pulliam and Steve Scarborough and Pete Jett, those guys own Dagger and Graham owns Piranha. And these individuals would show up in Crested Butte or in Salida, Colorado, whatever, all of it, like with their teams and their vans, and they'd bring kegs of beer. And it was like each trying to out-market and out-promote the other one as they're all fighting for market share. But they're also creating this fun, exciting thing that was a lot more activity around it. Um, then with recreational kayaks, and then all of a sudden there's these conglomerates and, you know, companies like we're called American Capital Strategies was the owner of Confluence. And then, you know, there was Watermark. It was owned by the Bank of Islam. I mean, people don't know about that. But anyway, the, <laughs> back in the day, just, just saying. Um, yeah. And um, good or bad, it's not, it doesn't matter either way, but it was not an American thing. But anyway, the, the, the energy going into the whitewater events pulled back because they were chasing the new dream, this recreational market. And then there's the fishing market and Jackson Kayak. And by the way, I'm not with Jackson Kayak anymore. That's not my company anymore. I have a new company called Apex Watercraft. But um, uh, same thing, Jackson Kayak, we got into fishing and you'd see me doing fishing tournaments and doing different things. So you can't do be all in on whitewater and do the other stuff at the same time. So that is a little bit of what you've seen on the decline now, but that isn't the individual paddler, the individual paddlers, that community will always be the same because you depend on your other paddlers and skiing or snowboarding. You can take one car to the mountain. You can go up and come back to the car. You can take a lift and come down. You can hike up and come down In kayaking. You have a put in and a takeout. You need two vehicles. So you have to run a shuttle. Um, kayaking, you can drown in kayaking. I mean, the reality is, no, the, the safety, this is good to know. Kayaking, whitewater kayaking statistics, it falls between hiking and riding a bicycle. And, and it's safer than a bicycle and more dangerous than hiking, but it's way safer, you know, statistically than skiing or snowboarding and all, mountain biking, all kinds of stuff. Anyway, so it's actually a very safe sport. But with that said... It requires a support network. You, you have to have people that know the river and whatever. So they, it's an individual sport that requires a team around them. So the, the intimacy is always there. The people are always depending on each other. Um, 
it's, it fosters a really amazing community that's um, very supportive of each other. And um, uh, that hasn't changed and won't change. And the, the number of days people are on the river is still really high. Like it hasn't dropped much, you know, over the years, if any. But um, I mean, it has some because there's this thing called baby boomers. Remember that group of people that are now like 80 or whatever, <laughs> 70 or whatever, and they're not paddling as much, but whitewater. But um, other than that, uh, it's it's very healthy. If we are, I mean, you kind of already are, I feel like this, maybe unofficially. I was about to say, like, if you were the czar in charge of, you know, boating, what, and you could just wave a wand or implement a policy, what's your best thought about how to increase participation or or you're welcome to say i'm good i'm not actually really interested in that so much so participation is about um uh uh, education schools so marketing um marketing should and i learned this a long time ago so like kayak stores the number of whitewater kayak stores it's really important to have a place to buy and then kayak stores want to make money but if a kayak store is marketing to get people to buy boats, they're wasting their money. They need to market to get people to come in and learn to kayak at their store. They need to have a kayak school to teach beginners. Even in the, in the top of Whitewater, when it was, had the most sales in the heyday, 40% of all the boaters on the water were beginners. So um, beginners coming in. So there's two things. One is um, uh, people that are have shops and people have stores, their focus needs to be on instruction, creating their own market. It's not the manufacturer's job. It's not anybody else's job. It's their job to create a market and you can make money teaching people. And then, oh, by the way, you make money selling product to them. So it's a win-win. The other thing is instruction needs to be good. So kayaking has this thing called the Eskimo rule and it's a real problem for beginners because a beginner comes in and that is where their fear kicks in. It's even in a swimming pool, people have an innate fear of being underwater inside. Am I strapped inside that thing? Like, can I get out? And it's like, so that keeps a lot of people away anyway, but here's a really bad statistic. And that's one out of 10 people who take a beginner kayak class, get to the point where they are comfortable enough with their whitewater kayaking to be, to actually buy a boat. So 90% of the people that say, get through all those hurdles and then go and take a beginner class, 90% of them are just go and disappear. And they disappear because they're not being led through the process properly in a way that, that keeps their fear level below their desire level. The desire level has to be higher than their fear level. The normal instruction is, okay, we're going to do a wet exit. You know, we're going to get in, we're going to tip over, you got to get out. Boom, fear's up here like, uh... And the more macho the dude is, the more they're just like, they don't want to show fear. It's like, yeah, it's not really for me. You know, I'm going to do something else. They'll do the wet exit. They're like, uh, I'm not doing that again um, because you just scared the shit out of me. Anyway, it's uh, so those two things. One is um, beginner instructors, unfortunately, uh, aren't taught well. Don't, um, don't teach as a whole. There's a lot of wonderful instructors out there. Um, but they don't follow a very specific logistical plan. That is always keep the, the excitement and desire higher than the fear. 
and that's just constantly putting mental, you know, mental deposits, positive deposits in. Every time you do a withdrawal, it has to be smaller than a deposit. You keep it there you know, all the way until they're a boat owner and they're on the water. You can almost manage, you could have 90% of the people make it through instead of 10%. That's how you create growth. But um, how do you educate all the people at once? Um, that's, a, that's more of a challenge. I've gone down that road before. <laughs> I love that. I've actually never heard that formulation before. Always keep the desire level above the fear level. That seems like exactly the right thing, like regardless of whatever new sport you might be trying to learn. And maybe for instructors out there of literally any, any sport, keep that in mind and be checking in with your, with your students and seeing if you're striking the right balance there. And it's actually not, I shouldn't just put, it's not just fear. It's think of it as a bank account. And so let's just say your snowboard costs, you know, a snowboard kit's going to cost you everything you want would be two grand, let's say. Um, well then, or that, I don't know, 1500, thousand, whatever it is, depending on what you buy. Let's say you're going to get, you can get everything for two grand. Well, then the person has to in their head have be so excited about what they're about to do. The mental deposits have to be a value of over two grand of hard earned cash that they're going to drop down on it, that they're ready to take that next step to get in. Right. So it's, it's fear. It's their desire has to be greater than both the fear and the challenge of the financial investment they need to make and the disruption to their normal lifestyle. Like normally on Sundays, I'm hanging out with Bubba, you know, drinking beer and watching football. Now we're going to go on the, man, I got to tell Bubba, I'm not going to be there. I'm going to go kayaking. All those negatives have to be lower combined. And so you have to really be, know how to make mental positive um, deposits. You got to get their mental bank account over the two grand. Let's just say that's the number. And at that point they're in, um, if you're at like 500, they're like, Oh, I really like this. But you know, Bubba, you know, the, uh, my $2,000 and it's a little, I don't know, I could break an ankle, you know, I'm like, that's, man, that was the best snowboarding lesson ever. That was the best kayak lesson ever. Like, bye. And like, what am I going to do next week? I don't know. Something different. <laughs> yeah. Bubba's blowing me up on text, trying to get me to hang out again. I, <laughs> I love, love that Bubba. Yeah. Bubba's uh, in on this game. We got to make these new activities attractive enough to make us tell Bubba, you know, Sundays aren't going to be the same anymore. Yeah, Bubba, you got to come kayaking with me, man. That's right. You got to get Bubba <laughs> off the couch. That's right. You've already talked about this a little bit, but I still want to put this specific question to you. Where would you most like to see the state of boating be, let's say, 10 years from now? And again, I realize I keep using boating as the broadest term, because I am curious to hear like which kind of particular stripe of quote unquote boating you where you might answer this, but 10 years from now. Okay, that's that's an easy question for me to answer. So the the evil empires of boating are they call them uh, are non-boater owners of companies are uh, people running companies making the, the critical decisions that are doing it from a spreadsheet um, and, uh, you know, profit and loss 
not that those things aren't important, obviously, in business, but what's best for kayakers, whether you're a kayak fisherman, a recreational kayaker, or whatever, and what's best for the company um, short term aren't always exactly the same thing, right? So, um, if you can't, uh, so the more companies that are bought out and conglomerates, so right now we're in a situation with kayaking where a lot of the major players are owned by uh, people that really don't care about what we're talking about right now. <laughs> um, it's just like how many units and what dealer and what's the terms and do you, that's all it is, right? That, the whole thing just stops right there. That's um, So progression, caretaking the sport, you know, finding out, you know, what's going on with people, what do they need and whatever. That's always going to happen by people that are passionate about the, the sport itself and care and are going to innovate and, and take care of those people. So 10 years from now, I want to see more new companies start um, that be, and the door is open because companies are out there not being run by paddlers. There's a lot of them and, and it just makes them really easy to beat in the marketplace, basically. Um, but more importantly, it makes it... Um, the customers can resonate with what you're doing. It's, it's actually neat. It's a better opportunity for new companies because of it. But if new companies don't jump on the bandwagon, then you're going to just see a lot of the same old, same old. Um, uh, it's just like the, the auto industry is a good example. Um, if you think GM and Ford and Chrysler, if you think they're innovators, they're like the opposite innovators. They, they have R&D teams to create technology that they put on a shelf that they will only take off the shelf if they feel somebody's got ahead of them. Now you take like a Tesla, you take like a Elon Musk, he's like, screw that, man, I'm going to do this. And it's like, um, without a Tesla, it, it's not going to push it. It's that type of disruption, that type of person coming in that's just like, I don't really care what you guys are doing. We're going to do this. Um, and with me, so like I was with Wavesport Kayaks. Um, they don't exist anymore. And they kind of do. The the name is still exists, but the company was sold. There's a name, there's another there's a Wavesport in Germany, whatever that's in Europe, but they bought the name or whatever. But uh, they got bought out, and I designed a boat for my son Dane, which was for a thirty pound kayaker. He was thirty pounds. I designed a boat for this Bubba boys, like two hundred and forty pounders, and I. Wavesport had gone from one and a half to three million to five million in sales, and I was going to take it to six and a half million. As I predicted, if we designed, if we come out with these boats that I want to come out with, the new owners, which was a, a conglomerate of American Capital Strategies at the time, they were like, "Yeah, you only get one mold. Which one are you going to do? And it can't be the kids' boat." Now, for, just from my perspective, just for me as a dad, I'm like. There is no way in hell I'm going to design boats for all these people if I'm not going to design them for my own kid. So it was just like, you know, bye-bye. I left, started Jackson. We started with a kid's boat. And the end result of the Fun One, the Jackson Kayak Fun One coming out, which keep in mind is for 30 to 80-pound kids. When I pulled the dealers, I pulled all the dealers, and they all said, we've never met a 30 to 80-pound paddler. Like, like, there is no market for that. And I'm like, well, there, you were right. In five years, we lowered the average age of a new kayaker by half. We cut the average age of a beginner kayaker in half with the fun one. 
And now today, if you look at the U.S. team, the German team, the British team, whatever, if you take all the top paddlers in the world, like 75% of them learn in a fun one. And it is, it is in, it's in response to the big the conglomerate saying like, no, we're going to just pull to the middle and we're only going to just give, we're going to eliminate all these fringes and just go down the middle. So anyway, that's my, I don't have a short version of any of these. I apologize for that. But <laughs> no, I, it's okay. Cause all of these long answers are really good ones. And, uh, that's a fascinating thing. And I, I really resonate with that. A question I find myself sort of asking a lot or a test I kind of give, and I think you would maybe resonate with this a bit, is when I'm looking at a company that's either a new company or one that's been around for a really long time, I just increasingly, I ask the question, who is at the helm? Answer that for me or let me see that. And then I'll tell you more about, you know, because because sometimes we have legacy brands, legacy retailers, you know, legacy auto brands, whatever, and they have these incredibly stellar reputations still. And it's like, well, is that earned today? You know, and when you're talking about like creating new product categories where one didn't exist before somebody that's only interested in the bottom line that's where the passion has to be there the passion for the space has to be there or it's an easy cross off of the spreadsheet right you're that's idiotic and it's like well maybe it isn't these are just really interesting things that i think i i don't know i'd like to think maybe we're getting better at identifying i don't know if that's true though but I, I really agree and resonate with everything you kind of just said here. Well, now that question of who's at the helm, that definitely is an important question because um, uh, they're making the decisions, obviously. <clears throat> and um, the other thing you said, which is people that they've earned, that they still have a, they still have a great reputation. Uh, it takes a long time to move. You know, there's reality and perception of reality. So reality, like, the reality is if you're an up and coming kayaker, you could be the best kayaker in the world at something right now, but nobody knows it. It's going to take, and then, and then the, people aren't going to say that. Like it's long after you've come up and you've a long time, all of a sudden people are like, wow, he's the best kayaker. Was, yeah. Like 10 years ago, I was already there or whatever, you know, and um, you just don't know. And then on the way down, people are like, oh man, that's the best kayaker in the world. It's like, well, you didn't even kayak anywhere. I don't know what you're talking about or, or surf or whatever. Or the same with brands, you know, there's brands out there that people in whitewater kayaking, people have a strong affinity to. And it's like, you do, and they're like, oh, that's the best brand because whatever. And it's like, you do know that like the owner is like over here and whatever, like um, he doesn't even like his own brand, man. Like, I'm not, <laughs> like <laughs> anyway, it's, it's just really weird. It's, it takes it takes a long time to move an entire industry, the customer's public perception of something. Uh, which is good once you've created that that top tier brand, um, but it's it's bad when you're are you know you're working to infiltrate even if you have better product and delivering better stuff. It takes a while to get there. I want to ask you about something that I think is pretty near and dear to your heart. We've been talking a lot about materials and tech and evolution of products and categories. 
I was really excited to talk with you about this because it is something that we have literally never discussed before in five some years of doing a whole bunch of different podcasts and having conversations with a lot of different people. And that is the topic of hearing loss and hearing aids. And first of all, I don't know how familiar people might be with this aspect of your story, but talk a little bit about your own experience with hearing loss. Uh, well, right now we're on a, whatever, Google meet thing. And if I go like this and now you talk, I won't know what you're saying. (laughs) So we can't actually have a Google meet right now if I'm not wearing my hearing aids. Now I am really good at reading lips, but reading lips on, uh, anyway, on the computer is a lot harder. So, uh, I was, uh, my wife would say I've, I've hereditary hearing loss and I was born with hearing loss. What my parents told me at age two, which I did, I had scarlet fever, and that's when I lost my hearing. I like that story way better, because that way my genes are just fine, you know? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> um, but <clears throat> growing up, uh, I just didn't have, I had really bad hearing, and I, it's been about the same my whole life. So the easiest way to understand is about 70% hearing loss. So I hear it about 30% of the volume, but there's more to it it's nerve damage that causes the sound is jumbled so like i can crank the volume on you know led zeppelin song and i've listened to it for 30 years and i don't know the words still because i can't where everybody hears it once and like wait you don't know the lyrics like how do you not know the lyrics like because it doesn't you can't i don't i could read a lyric sheet and i can learn it right away but without it i can't but what that looked like when I, I when I was five, I went to get to a place about getting hearing aids, and they were super expensive. And we lived in a single wide trailer and whatever back in the time. And um, I remember my mom like crying, like because I can't get hearing aids. It was like she was super bummed, and I'm like, oh, don't worry about it, mom. And I just like went to kindergarten. They pushed me up against the teacher's desk. I was sat front and center. I was learning to read lips and whatever, and I did did fine. Like I didn't I didn't mind being front and center. It was fine for me. <laughs> And it, but you know how I don't know you, how old you are, but remember we used to have record players. You put a record on, with, and then it had a shitty speaker, and then it would be a story, and then you'd do like book report or something on the story. And I'd be there like, uh, and I don't even know what they're talking about. Never mind, do a book report on it. That was all the way through school, through college. I was in college. My grandmother got me my first set of Miracle Ear hearing aids, and this was in eighties or early eighties. And man, they suck so bad. <laughs> My first experience with hearing aids was terrible. It was like you put them in and it was just, it wasn't comfortable. It sounded terrible. Everything was, everything you didn't want to hear was amplified and you still didn't know what the hell was going on. In some cases, like you could, it was better than not having hearing aids, absolutely. But not to the point of where I wouldn't be like, I just didn't wear them. And then I went another 20 years without hearing aids. And then I got um, another brand, but these, the first digital ones. And they were like, oh, these are way better. But they were still annoying to the point where it was like, uh, okay, I don't need to wear them. I'd take them off. And then I kept following the technology all the way until recently. And what's what's cool for me is like literally just in the last two years, really in the last year, my current hearing aids are finally to the point where if this is a normal hearing, what it's like to hear normally, the technology provides that experience um 
not quite like with normal hearing, but has all these other benefits to where I would rather, like I fall asleep with my hearing aids on now, where I forget I have them on. But actually now for the first time, I feel sorry for people that don't have hearing loss. Like the technology is that good where like it connects to my phone in a really meaningful way. Like my phone rings, I answer the phone, my phone's in my pocket, I talk on the phone. Um, so anyway, my hearing loss was always, without my hearing aids, I'm a, like a problem. Like it's a problem. Like if I'm in a room, if we're in a group of people, like I'm the one guy has no friggin' clue, I'll bust out a whole different subject and be like, hey, you know, you seen the new tires on my truck? Just to try to get the conversation on something I know what they're talking about. But anyway, uh, having hearing loss sucks. <laughs> yeah. And it was funny. My grandfather, I remember as a kid, you know, my grandfather kind of had these unwieldy hearing aids and they were constantly kind of ringing out and it, it just everything about it seemed like a bad experience. And to be very honest, I just wasn't aware of where things had developed. And so to hear you say, yeah, you know, the ones that you're using now and the company, it's Resound? Yeah, Resound. It's uh, Resound GN is like the full name. They're out of Sweden. They came out with the first ones that have, um, that actually have a, so there's four microphones. There's microphones on the behind the ear, um, but there's a microphone inside uh, this as well. Um, this is just one of the things that's like a massive change. So what, with, um, your ear is designed to, to channel the sound in a certain way. It, it helps you tell the distance of the sound and the direction of the sound. If you wear just hearing aids, for example, the normal, before these hearing aids, you have the microphones are all behind your ear. Somebody over to your right says something and you, you don't know where to look. Um, you hear a sound that you go outside and there's a bird in the tree, whatever. And you're like, it could be right in front of you. It could be way over there. You don't know. But uh, anyway, this company Resound is the first one to put a microphone and receiver in the ear. And it's, it's huge. So now you can, you know, distance and literally you, the other hearing aids can make you dizzy and nauseous if you're, if you don't have that. So having that, like you having that directional and distance and just like your body's designed, your brain is wired for that. Right. And if you're like, now me, I've always had hearing loss, but if you are old and you're just losing your hearing, it really screws up your head. Like, like people get dementia, they get Alzheimer's more if they have hearing loss. Um, they just feel cut off from the world, but they're also, it's when they put bad hearing aids in, it messes with their, like they get nauseous. It doesn't make them feel good. So most people they're like you said, with your grandfather, they're like, man, you don't ever want to have to wear these. These suck. But I can tell you now it's like these resound. It's called the ones resound ones is the name of the one I've got now. But um, it's like literally it's the first time and I've had I've been through th three brands, four brands and following the technology for the last 15 years. Um, these are the first ones that I lay down in bed and be like, damn, I got my hearing aids again. I got to go take them out and put them in the charger. And that is never, you would, in a million years, that would never happen with even one generation ago. You'd be like, can I take these out now? That's what you're thinking. It's really cool. And it's kind of exciting. I think we, 
there's just more and more developments, I feel like, along these lines. I mean, in just in terms of thinking about, I mean, we just went back to an example where you're like, well, I created a kayak for kids, you know, or people that very, very light human beings, you know, and I think it's just really cool when we see new technologies, new products that just kind of make the world better for people, whatever their particular situation is. Like I said, I had to confess that like, man, I just have not thought much about this issue. And I saw a stat recently that nearly 29 million people just in the United States suffer from some form of hearing loss. So we're not talking about that tiny of a demographic here. I think it's like almost one out of eight people have hearing loss in both ears in the U.S. And if you asked me 10, 15 years ago, I wouldn't have recommended, oh, it's not that bad. Yeah, you don't need to get hearing aids. Like, if you can understand what we're doing, you're not going to want them. Now, if you don't have hearing loss, I feel bad for you if you're not wearing what I got in my ears. Just because of the connectivity and the way I can have, you can bring your volume up and down. You can shut things off. You can talk on the phone and shut out the outside noise. You can talk on your phone and hear what people are doing. You can listen to music and quiet the outside noise. You can listen to music and hear what people are. You can be at the dinner table. Not that my wife sees she's been doing this. She's like, you turn that off. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway the, um, so the cool thing, it's really simple. So like, Let's just say if some, one of your listeners right now or what, someone's watching this, if you go to resound.com, they've got like a little hearing test that you can do right there. And if, it, if you're not 100% hearing, it's worth you go and you can get a hearing test at an audiologist for free. And they'll give you a printout, which is really cool. You get like a graph that shows normal hearing and then it'll have all yours. Mine is like what they call a cookie bite. It goes down. And backup. So, like the mid range is really, really bad. It was like people talk, specifically women's voices is my worst. Right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> you get this thing and you're like, oh, so okay. And then they can show you what it sounds like when you hear that. And you're like, it's, it's kind of like if you've never worn glasses, you know, like um, first time you put on glasses and you're like, man. And so that's what I should be like, I'm such an idiot. I should have been wearing these for the last five years, whatever. So it's definitely worth doing it. But like you said, the technology is still going. One more, one story on that was this Marie, these Resound Ones have that microphone in the ear, right? But one of the things that suck about hearing aids is you're out, if you're out, an outdoor person like me and it's windy, the hearing aids blows. You know what a micro, you, you're, you're audio, you do audio. You have to put the foamy thing on the microphone yeah. or whatever. It's a windy day. It's like, <laughs> yep. Well, there's a reason people don't like wearing hearing aids outside because that's what you hear. But these ones have a setting. You have an app and you just put it on the, the Marie only setting, meaning the only microphone picking it up is the one that's inside your ear protected from the wind. It's like the only one that does that. But the reason that's important, because if you don't have that, every time you go outside, it's like, and it's windy, it's like, <laughs> like riding a bike, skiing, doing anything else. You're like, am I going to wear my hearing aids? No way in hell. But with these, you put it on the, the one, only one microphone is operating and it's inside your ear, protected from the wind. All of a sudden you eliminate that. What's cool about Resound was they, they plugged me in. I was like, man, I, we've got to fix this wind issue. 
I sent an email to an R&D person. It was just a programming thing. They have to change the technology. They just did a programming thing and they give you another option on the app and boom, you're done. Anyway, the progress will continue on hearing aids. It's like five years from now, who knows what will be, where it will be, but it's pretty cool. I just like the idea. I honestly don't know how many people listening to this maybe have an issue of their own or know someone, have someone close to them that is having an issue where maybe they just aren't up on the current state of sort of hearing aid tech. But I sure like the idea if somebody maybe was in a bit of my situation that had kind of written this off as just things that don't really work, that if maybe they're hearing this and they're like, maybe I should go check this out. It's a different game than kind of the old narrative that probably a lot of us are familiar with. I like that idea and like the idea of some people being helped out. The number one challenge the hearing aid industry has is the fact that they've been, they, the technology just wasn't up to snuff. You know, eyeglasses, you know, they've been making really good glass for hundreds of years, right? They've got a system down, but, uh, you know, electronic technology that you put in your ear that sounds like it's supposed to and does all the right things. I mean, they the first digital ones, there's all these filters and everything. Like if, it, if it's a constant sound, it, it filters it out. And, and these ones have it too. But you'll be sitting there hearing stuff. All of a sudden, their whole world will go, and everything just closes. And you're like, oh, and you're like, what the hell is that? That was a filter. That's a, somebody programmed it in there. And it's like, dude, man, you're going to make me throw up. Like, what are you doing? And it, it's just, it's taken a long time. The, the problem hearing aids companies have is, I only know the one, this one exact one that does everything it does. And people, it's it's be five years for most people are comfortable with that. So, ninety nine percent of people are remember what grandma and grandpa dealt with, and they're that's their knowledge. So, uh, that's what the hearing aid industry has to deal with is they need to be like, hey, like these aren't grandma's hearing aids, you know? Like you got to try them. I, mean, I don't know how to do that, but other than that, they need to get in front of a lot of people. Conversations like this hopefully help the cause. Eric, I want to let you get going, but I can't let you go before we talk about your latest endeavor. As I said a while back, this is not as if we're talking to someone who, you know, used to be a designer and used to be in the game. It's like, nope, you are out very much firing up a whole new deal. And so um, I'd love to hear you just talk a bit about that and, you know, where you are in these early days of Apex. Sure. Well, the, um, yeah, I've got a new kayak company I started called Apex Watercraft and my first boat, um, I actually started it in right the first quarter of 2020. So, you know, it was, uh, I had all the COVID challenges of starting a factory and all those things in there. Um, so it's a slow, a slow process, but the, the company's objective, you know, it's called Apex because the goal is of course to be at the top, top, you know, not as an opinion, but Apex is by definition a scientific term. It's the top, right? It's an unbelievable concept, right? So I, my objective, of course, is the, the place, the product and what we're delivering to the customer there. The first kayak I made is a 40-pound, almost 13-foot, 36-inch wide fishing kayak. That's um, the same. That size kayak would be over 100 pounds in plastic. Um, 
And that makes, it does two things. One, it allows somebody like me to be really competitive. Like I can run through the woods with the boat. I can get this place, the, the kayak to places. I can accelerate and turn. I can go faster. It just performs better for kayak fishing tournaments. But for baby boomers and the old people that aren't nimble, whatever, it, it's they can actually put it on the roof rack. So they can get it to the water. They can get it out of the water where they can't get it out of the showroom floor if it's a 120-pound boat. That's the first thing. Um, I also have a, um, a my first whitewater kayak design that's um, getting ready to be prototyped. Um, and I'll be making composite um, whitewater kayaks. Um, and then there's more I'm not telling you about on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but um, Have to have you back? Yeah, if you know, if you follow my history and you know what's important to me, you have an idea of the areas of the game I want to play. Um, there's things that I really enjoy doing, um, and I'm not going to stop doing them because, you know, I'm not at the home of Jackson kayak anymore. But I mean, man, in this very conversation, we've talked a lot about sort of materials and the development, you know, and the progression in materials. And it's like, you are on to the next. Yeah. We have materials that are, we're using in the apex. I'll give you one example where the first product in the history of the world to use this polyurea coating. You gotta Google, do YouTube searches of polyurea and just, just you'll see some random crazy stuff, but I'm molded in that's a coating on the outside of the boat that's like, just takes composites to a whole new level. Like it's super lightweight, incredibly tough and abrasion resistant. Um, anyway, it's huge. Um, that's pretty cool and, and uh, Apex, was the first product of any type in any industry to ever to apply it. Uh, so that's super cool. Um, and there's more cool stuff that we're doing. But anyway, we, uh, we're pretty excited. Hey, man, this has been really fun. I love having these conversations where I get to kind of dive in kind of with exactly the right person and do a bit of a history and get an overview and a state of the union in a particular industry. And um, yeah, I everybody who knows, knows that if we were going to have such a conversation about the boat world, I think we found the right person here. So I, I really have appreciated this and um, appreciate the kind of iconoclasm and uh, and pioneering that you've done and are still doing. I, I have a real... Uh, fondness for those types so you know i'm gonna be sitting around happy to see what you're rolling out next well really appreciate it jonathan and uh, good job with uh blister summit keep up the good work i'm keeping uh getting information out there and uh hopefully you'll have some big more big snow days and crested butte um this coming up this year meanwhile we've got about 0.75 inches coming and the falls are already running out front so um we have some great whitewater kayaking in the backyard, some good class five and waterfalls running right now. And it looks like it's going to be indefinite. So we're in good shape. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Eric, thanks again. Best of luck with all of it. And uh, look forward to talking again down the line. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Talk soon. We'll see you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Eric for the great conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again later this week. <laughs>